Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. Welcome everybody back to another episode of the Animals to the Max podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. I am so excited. I Listeners, I am so excited today. On the show, we're going to talk about alligators with one of the world's leading experts on alligator behavior, conservation, and courtship. On the show, I have Dr. Kent Vliet. He has been studying and working with alligators for over 40 years You know, when I was a kid, alligators were always my favorite animals. And I mean, I'm pretty sure alligators are still one of my favorite animals. They just have always fascinated me. I was that like really weird kid that would go to the zoo and just stare at a motionless alligator. I'll I'll never forget it. I would literally be there for over an hour and I would just stare at this alligator that would not move. And I remember my mom would always be like, Corbin, come on, there's other animals. And I'm like, Come on, mom, just wait. Like, I just want to stare at this motionless creature. Growing up, I had countless books on alligators, and there was this one VHS tape about alligators that I was obsessed with, and I would watch over and over as a kid. And there was a guy in that documentary, an alligator researcher, who would swim with the alligators, and he had this wooden pole that he would use to kind of shift the alligators away if they got too close. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this guy has a dream job working with alligators, and on top of that, he's swimming with them. So you can imagine my excitement when I actually got connected with Dr. Kent Fleet, who was that person I watched when I was a kid. And it was actually during the interview with Wayne Lynch, the guy who wrote the book about bears of the North. And he mentioned that he knew Kent. And on on the side, I was like, oh my goodness. After the interview, I was like, Wayne, I have to get Kent's information. So that is how this interview came to life. And I was so excited talking to Kent, one of my childhood heroes. And I had many questions to ask him. If you're not aware, I currently house two rescued American alligators, Sonny and Chompers. And if you follow me on you know, YouTube or TikTok or Instagram, you know, I mean, I post about them daily. We do tons of videos there. The video views on the alligators have been seen millions and millions of time. People are obsessed with these alligators. And I had a lot of questions for Kent about Sonny and Chompers. And one of the number one questions I get when we post videos online is, when are you going to introduce Sonny and Chompers because they are currently separated. So I was able to ask Kent all of my burning questions about when I should introduce them. Kent is a lead researcher in alligator courtship. So I asked about, you know, Sonny and Chompers and, you know, them bellowing and communicating. I asked him his thoughts. Should I put them together or should I not? It was really, really interesting. Kent also goes into close calls that he has had with alligators. We talk about what to do if you are a unfortunately attacked by an alligator, some things that he would do from an expert opinion, which is something good to know. I should actually put in note though, that alligators very rarely attack and kill people. You're more likely to be killed by a coconut. So just throwing that out there. So we have a bunch of uh, great discussions near the end of the podcast. We talk about alligator farms and I asked Kit, his thoughts on alligator farms and if it's really helping for conservation. So make sure to stay tuned for that. As always, I encourage you to join Kent and I for the after show. It's where it's at. If you want to listen to the full interview, please join us for the after show. I want to give a shout out to our new Patreon member, Dina. Dina, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you. Thank you and welcome to our Patreon family. Dina and all of our Patreons get access to the full interview of the Animals to the Max. All you have to do is head on over to patreon.com slash animals to the max. I'll put the links in the show notes. Before we get to Kent, as always, I also encourage you listening. If you have not had a chance, please rate and review the show. I am asking you, if you're a fan, it takes like 30 seconds, but you know, it's a great way to help the show out. It's a great way for the show to reach new people, more people who are interested in learning about animals. With that said, let's get to it. Let's talk about alligators. Kent, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Corbin. I, uh, Kent, I have to say, when I was a kid, I, I literally would watch this VHS tape of you with the alligators. I still have the VHS tape of you swimming with the alligators and you had a pole kind of to keep them away. And I remember looking at you thinking, oh my goodness, I want this guy's job. Like, you were one of my heroes. Yeah, that that video got a lot of airplay. And 
it got a lot more play in schools as well. So for many years, I mean, that was done back in the mid-1980s. But for years and years after that, I'd have little school kids come up and and talk to me about it because they'd seen me in school. People, teachers were still playing the VHS tapes uh, to their students. Yeah, I remember I was so nervous for you when you were going in with all those alligators. Then there was a scene where one kind of got too close and all you had was your just what it was like a little wooden pole that you keep them away from with. Yeah, Um I knew those alligators. Mm. Uh, that was a, those were uh, a captive study oh. population I had. Mm. I mean, I've done. I have swum with wild alligators also, but I don't advise that to mm. anyone. I, I'm not sure I advise what I did to anyone. I was studying courtship behavior at the time, uh, and we were studying it from the from the land surface and from a wooden boardwalk that crossed the lake that had my study animals in it. So I was always kind of looking down on the animals. And I wanted to get uh, uh, basically an alligator's eye view of of what they were seeing uh, because my sense was they were communicating to one another by the amount of their body that they were exposing as they were approaching one another for courtship. And so I got down into the water with them and um, um, I I basically knew there were about 165 alligators in that lake, all adults. But I'd been watching them for some time and I kind of knew who the I wouldn't say bad actors were, but I knew who the ones were that were likely to cause a fuss and what parts of the lake they were they were defending. So I could kind of keep my eyes on them. Uh, and, uh, and But I did carry the pole around with me just so I could kind of slowly push an animal away from me if they got too close. And, and they would do that. Alligators, uh, you know, there's not very much of an alligator visible at the, above the water surface, typically. The vast mm-hmm. majority of the body's underwater, and, and alligators have difficulty telling how big another alligator is with the minimal amount of what they see. And so one way they do that, especially during courtship season, is they swim over and they just bump into the other animal. And and if they bounce off, the other guy's bigger than they are. And if the other animal gets shoved away, they're bigger than it is. And so that's a natural alligator behavior to just swim over and just kind of run into you, not forcibly, but just kind of bounce into you and see what happens. And they would try to do the same thing to me in the lake. So I needed an ability to to take the pole and just kind of get it on their snout or I'd hook it onto their breastbone and just slowly push them away so I didn't agitate them too much as I did that. Yeah, you didn't have any close calls while swimming in that lake? I had a few close calls. Uh, actually, the first time I went into the lake, I had a couple of close calls right off the bat, and I, I, I wasn't too sure about this idea of going in the lake anyway. And so I was, uh, I was uh, basically uh, leaning toward this not being too good an idea. But the first time I went in, I went in in the morning. And I had on uh, uh, a mask and a snorkel mm. um, and uh, and started swimming around kind of low in the water with that snorkel sticking up. And it immediately drew the attention of a, about a nine and a half foot alligator that was 30 or 40 feet away from me. And he started swimming pretty rapidly toward me. So... One of the things I had decided to do in case of uh, uh, a dire situation there was I would stay in parts of the lake where the where I was in relatively shallow water mm. so that if I stood up, at least half of my body was visible. Because if you're used to other organisms in the water being only a few inches high or at least uh, only a few inches visible – 
and and something else comes rising up out of the water several feet, that's intimidating to an alligator. And so I had already decided that was what I was going to try to do if if one actually charged me. And so I stood up, and he stopped, and he wasn't very far from me when that happened. And um, but he he kind of froze in place, and so I stayed real still uh, for I don't know how long, thirty seconds or something like that. And then I really quickly used my hand and just splashed water in his eyes. Oh. And that and that startled him and he turned and swam off. And so then I got back down in the water and tried it again. Same thing happened with a different animal. And so I I got out of the water. Um but a day or two later I went back in the afternoon. And um Things are a little more languid in the afternoon because they've been spending time laying on the basking beach and, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and instead of getting in and just swimming around in the lake, I just got in and I backed myself up to one of the posts of the boardwalk so that my back was a little bit protected and I just sat there. I didn't try moving around and and then I could sit and watch them fine and that's how I started and um, and after a while I learned that if I moved slowly and uh, you know didn't make too much didn't make myself too obvious I could move around that lake I could get right up on courting pairs and watch them close I could video uh, film them at one point, I it, it's really hard to tell when they're actually mating in murky water. So at one point, I swam under a pair that was mounted and just reached up and see what was going on <laughs> there, which which they didn't care for. No. Uh, so that, that kind of set them off. <laughs> I only really had one close call while I was there. Generally, my assumption... Um, again, another one of these assumptions I had made for myself before going in the water was that only alligators on the surface were dangerous um, because generally alligators have to be looking at something before they're going to attack it. It's not entirely true. There are cases of people being bitten that were just wading and they kicked into a gator and it just snapped at them. Mm. Uh, but in general, if I was, if I was like when I was catching animals in that lake, uh, if I had an alligator, I would be waiting around and throwing ropes on animals and pulling them over so I could put tags on them to identify individuals. Mm -hmm. If I had an alligator pop up right next to me, that's a bad thing. And so I would just take my finger and push it underwater, and um, and as as soon as its eyes went underwater, it would just kind of turn and swim off. Um, when we're catching them and we're you know trying to pull them toward the bank, I always try to pull them so that they stay underwater because mm. as soon as they come to the surface and open their eyes and see what's going on, that's when they freak out. That's when all this splashing starts and that sort of thing but I was I was sitting there minding my own business one day and I thankfully I was in water that was fairly clear that day and I could see this female alligator coming toward me and uh, and so I took my pole and and um, I didn't try to push her away I just put it in the ground so that she would run into it Mm. Uh, which she did uh, but she started to go around it. So then I moved it and and did that again. She went around it two or three times. And by that point, I was thinking she was really trying to come to me instead of just swimming along. So then I really pushed her away. And, uh, and then she tried the same thing again and came back. And this was all underwater. Mm. And uh, she actually got past my pole that time and got her jaws around the calf of my right leg. Oh my gosh. Uh, but uh, which could have been really bad news uh for me, but 
thankfully, alligators do something to one another that's called a mock bite, where during certain aggression, one will grab the other animal by the leg or the tail or something like that, but they don't actually bite down. It's just a threat of a bite. Mm. And that's what she did. And it gave me time to jump up and, you know, extricate myself from the situation and and get her pushed away to where she wasn't bothering me anymore. So that was a close call. So in your professional opinion, if it was not a mock bite, what would be the next steps in your mind? I know I feel like what I would do, but I just want to hear from you what you would do. Yeah, so uh, there's lots of lots of opinions of what's best to do if they're mm. biting on you. Um, the thing that I I know works is to ram your thumbs into their eyes. That's what I was thinking. Uh, yeah. So their eyes are their eyes are actually designed to recede down into their skulls. Mm. Um, they, they can be retracted below the outer surface of the skull and the eyelid over that eye has bone in it. So if they're swimming along underwater and they run into a log and slide under it, their, their eye gets shoved down the, and the bone in the eyelid protects the eye. Mm. So, uh, so their eyes are basically meant to be push down in the head but what you have to do is shove shove into the eye because you're trying to inflict pain on them hmm. if if they've actually got a hold of you hmm. the other thing that i in talking to people that have been bitten things that i'd thought about previously and that, that they happen to have done is if they have your arm in their mouth and this would not be an easy thing to do but um they have a they have a kind of a valve in the back of their throat, which we call a palatal valve, which keeps water from going down into their lungs when their mouths open underwater. And if you can maneuver your hand back there and grab that valve and just open Ooh. it up, that that's disturbing. Kid, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> well, it would be, but you're in a terrifying situation at that point. And, the, you know, the chances of you actually being able to maneuver your hand around and do that are not good because, you know, alligators have, they have, uh, crocodilians in general have the strongest bite force of any animal that's ever been measured. They're biting with, with uh, you know, tens of thousands of pounds of pressure per square inch mm. in a big adult animal. Mm. And so you may not be able to move your arm at all. And if, depending on how violent that initial bite is, they may have already shaken you or twisted and broken the bones in your arm. You may not have any use of your arm. But that is a maneuver that, that I've talked to people that that were part of a, of a crocodile attack and they were able to get to that valve and open it and it caused the croc to let go of them. Okay. And I, I do want to say, though, being attacked by an alligator, isn't it, isn't it fairly rare? Like how many people do they kill a year, Kent? So uh, in the past 20 or 30 years, we've had kind of an uptick in the number of fatalities. Hmm. Uh, before, I would say it was maybe one person every five years or something hmm. like that. Now, it varies a lot. So we just had a fatality in Florida, uh, but uh, we hadn't had one for several years. But mm. but that was kind of a long gap based on recent history. So it's, it's somewhere between a half of a fatality and one fatality a year That's what they say. on average. Yeah, so you like know, a... one every two, one every one or two years. Okay, so and, it's rare. Yeah, and almost all the fatalities have been in Florida, though that's beginning to change a bit just because we've we've had a, a couple in 
in uh, South Carolina. We've we had one in Louisiana, uh, which is the first one that I'm aware of in more than a century. Mm. Uh, we had one two or three years ago in Texas, which was the first one since the late 1700s mm. that I'm aware of. Uh, so they are not common. And that's an important point to make, that alligators are not saltwater crocs or Nile crocs. There are species of crocodilians that that do kill people on a, on a, a terribly regular basis, you know. And mm -hmm. so in Africa, there there's not really a known figure, but it's probably in the in the low to mid hundreds, you know, maybe 500 uh, people a year are taken by Nile crocs. Mm -hmm. Nile crocs are a species that has evolved to take large prey. Um, and not that alligators can't take a, an adult human, but they just don't typically grab big prey like that. Mm -hmm. um, and they just aren't, naturally as ferocious as saltwater crocs are or nile crocs are so saltwater crocs are another species that again we don't really know i mean in the areas where they're studied well like northern australia they maybe kill a couple of people a year but if you they have a big range. So if you look up in uh, in Southeast Asia or in, in Indonesia, um, there are there are people being killed on a pretty regular basis. Again, maybe 500 could be a thousand people a year, um, because people in that part of the world utilize waterways differently than we do in the United States. They're using them to bathe. They're using them to get water for, you know, house house stuff. Uh, they're down there washing their clothes. So they're squatted down right next to the water or even in the water. And they're making a commotion. And they're not moving away. So they, they, um, they're just an easy mark for a predator. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I just, so evolutionary wise, do you think Nile crocodiles became more ferocious because of the environment they were in, you know, competing with animals like, you know, lions, leopards, hyenas, they're also taking down bigger prey animals like wildebeest, other ungulates, whereas alligators evolved to eat smaller stuff. Like I know they can take down a deer, but like they're eating you know, birds, turtles, raccoons. Do you think that's why alligators aren't as ferocious as crocodiles? It's possible that um, it's one of the reasons why standing up may put an alligator off of thinking about doing something to you. It's possible that they're just not really accustomed to taking big prey. And it's really only the very big ones that tend to take take what would be considered big prey here, like uh, white-tailed deer or, you know, uh, uh, calf, a bovine calf or mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. Those those would be big alligators. So, you know, alligators eat basically anything that they think might be something worth eating. And so as they get bigger and bigger, that range of things increases in size. Even the biggest alligator will still spend an afternoon trying to eat little mosquito fish or they'll <laughs> be grabbing crayfish or snails off the bottom or something like that. But they're also trying to get bigger stuff like like birds or fish or turtles or, or whatever. Um, but we know that... that uh, Crocodilians, uh, in an evolutionary sense, during periods when there are large prey available, crocodilians get larger and larger so that they can take those prey. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if you look at extinct forms, the really biggest animals we had 
that are related to uh, living forms or, or, or less closely related to living forms. The really big ones that we had, which maybe were um, 40 feet in length. Wow. They were huge animals. Mm. Were taking dinosaurs, mm -hmm. you know, and, and other large, large prey at the time. Um, hmm. when the Spanish first came to the new world, they would, when they were in the, in the Caribbean, they would release pigs on the islands to reproduce so that when they came back on another trip, they would have something to hunt and eat. And, um, and you can see at that time that the native American crocodiles started getting bigger. Because mm. before that, they didn't have anything big to eat. Mm. Uh, and uh, But now they had pigs. Um, the reverse of that, in the, in the Pliocene, Cuban crocodiles, which are now a pretty, I mean, we consider them medium-sized crocs. They get maybe, you know, 10, 10 feet maximum. Mm -hmm. Um because there's there's nothing bigger than these these um, rodents that are you know the size of a of a big rabbit or something there now. There used to be uh, small ground sloths there that were the size of a a black bear. Oh my god! And so Cuban crocs at that time got to 14 feet in length. They were huge animals, so they would have been fearsome animals because. Cuban crocs are are very capable of running and leaping, and and they they'll run across land like a dog. I mean, they're mm. really terrestrial animals. But but so food availability is influencing their their uh, their size and their attitude toward prey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that would make sense, like in the Nile, having bigger prey resources, you know, would increase, you know, that's why they're so big there. So, yeah. Yeah, I, and they're, they they do get access to big prey, mm -hmm. and they are big animals. They're, they're much bigger than an alligator is. Mm -hmm. I mean, as an adult animal, they're, mm -hmm. you know, big males are 16 to 18 feet. Mm, just massive. Now, Ken, I have a question because you studied alligator courtship. And I currently care for two rescued American alligators. I've had Sonny, who is, he's, he's, he's around 20 years old. He was rescued from a, a actually a bedroom. Someone got him as a pet and then he outgrew his tank and he was, I literally found him in, in, in a bedroom. So I've had him for 15 years. Sonny's a male. We know that for sure. And he is around 9.8 feet. And then I have a female and her name is Chompers. And she is six, um, six feet, 11 inches. And she okay. was, she was illegally given as an anniversary present. So I've had chompers since she was, I mean, just a cute little thing. And then now she's, uh, you know, almost seven feet. Sonny's 9.8 feet. So we currently have them separated. And the big thing is, you know, will we introduce them? Is it safe to introduce them? I've talked to people, experts around the world. Um, they can see they, they, we have a partition that separates their pool. They have a big 38-foot-long pool. A partition separates them under the water, and they can still see each other. We've captured them communicating to each other. What are your thoughts? Because Sonny is so much bigger, and as you know, females are smaller. So... Males being larger than females is a good thing mm -hmm. uh, when you're dealing with captive animals because okay. females can be quite aggressive to male suitors. And one of the situations, and we don't find this situation so much in alligators because we have a lot of gators and it's easy to find a suitable pair. Mm. But when we're breeding uh, much more rare species of crocodilians in captivity, there's always this tendency to want to put them together and try to breed them. And people will get impatient waiting for the male to grow to a much larger size than the female. And they'll go ahead and try to pair them up and then the female will injure or kill the male. Hmm. Uh, males have to be able to physically dominate females 
for the the female to be accepting of the male for courtship and and mating. Your females, your male is is obviously mature. I mean, he would not be a real contender in the wild. He's still small compared to full-grown males <laughs> which but, is so weird because he's giant to me <laughs> he's like he's right, huge <laughs> but, but it's all relative right yeah so, yeah uh, but she's just right at the prime size for reproduction oh and so um if they're if they're next to one another in the enclosure if they're bellowing back and forth they to are one another if in the springtime she's kind of hanging around near him, those are all good signs. Uh, so one of the things about trying to set up a breeding pair of crocodilians in captivity is that conditions are really different than they are in the wild. If, if a female wants to get away from a male in the wild, she's got plenty of ways to do that. In captivity, they can't because we've given them this little space. I don't know how big your enclosure is, but it's it's not the wild, right? Mm -hmm. It's got a fence around it. And, and there, you know, if the male wants to pursue her or she wants to pursue him, they don't really have a means of, of avoiding that. And that's when you can get injuries or, or worse. And so... Having, a, you know, we usually will put like guillotine doors in the in the separation between them. It's great that they can see one another. They're, are they in the same body of water, I, yep. I'm guessing? Yep. So they can smell one another. They can taste one another. That's all really good. What I would suggest, uh, and this is what we've done with species that, that might be aggressive to one another, um, you put more than one uh, gate in that fence, more than one guillotine gate. And I tend to put them over in the corners okay. so that, you you know, you open one gate and you let that animal in and they begin to interact. And it may go great and you don't have anything to worry about. But if one of them starts chasing the other around the enclosure, they're going to end up going along the fence line and if you have a gate on each end of that bisecting fence, they have a chance to get out. And the other one may follow them around uh, into the other enclosure, but then the the one being chased can just go back through the other gate and just kind of keep doing a round robin until somebody gets tired and decides to, you know, sink to the bottom and go to sleep or whatever mm -hmm. so that's a that's a good configuration for enclosures so that nobody gets trapped mm -hmm. when you're first trying to set up these pairs mm -hmm. it's also a good thing you know in the wild alligator males and females may spend all year together but that is not the norm and the norm is depending on the habitat Either in the spring, males will seek out females, or more often, males are out defending territories out in open waters. Females are in, in the backwaters, and females will go out to these bellowing males, and they'll spend time with them and, uh, and court with them and breed with them. And then the female goes back to where she came from and she'll go find uh, secluded areas where she can build a nest and lay her eggs. And the male's really not a part of any of that. Hmm. And so there's, there's nothing wrong with just letting them be together for two or three weeks in May or uh, uh, where are you again? Idaho. You're in Idaho. Yeah. I'm not really sure how to guess exactly when their breeding season would be in Idaho because the gators don't occur there. But I, I would guess it's going to be sometime in May. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Probably toward the end of May, mm -hmm. maybe even the beginning of June. So it would be okay to let them together from mid-May to 
until you've seen courtship and mating, mm -hmm. and then go ahead and close them off again. And uh, so you, you're not worrying about the female attacking the male when she's guarding the nest or when she's hatching the babies or whatever. And I mean, but ideally though, I mean, we wanted them just to have access to the big pool. And like I said, the pool's big, 38 feet long, 10 feet wide, four feet deep. They have a huge, the beaches, outdoor areas and stuff. But I mean, our goal would not be to breed them. Cause it's like, I don't want to contribute to more American alligators. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I guess we just wanted them to be able to have access to the full pool. I guess that was the point. But you're saying year-round that might not be the best idea? Is that what you're saying? Well, I would I would work first on trying to get them together safely. Okay. And um, if they've been near one another for a long time mm – -hmm. um, and um, I mean, they have the, you have the advantage in that your female knows this male. Okay. Um, one of the problems you often have with with uh, captive animals is we've kept them apart until we try to make a pair out of them. Mm. And the females, the smaller ones, have often never seen an alligator as big as the one you're trying to put them with, and they're terrified of that animal. Sure. And so there's a lot of fear associated with 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 that initial greeting, and I don't think that will be true in your case. So I would I would just try to put them together and uh, and um, and pay attention to them, and uh, they'll they'll probably set themselves up fine. Alligators are not a terribly aggressive species. They're used to being in social groups. I'm and... just so nervous because Sonny, the male, is so much bigger. And Chompers is so much smaller. It just makes me so nervous. So you think that we're, we're past the point where he would look at her as a food source? Alligators are cannibalistic. And so they... They they may kill another alligator, and it's not always really clear what you know what instigated that. But that I would not expect that to be an issue. Mm. If you're if you're giving them access during the breeding season, which is a natural time they would come together. Okay. Um, I would uh, I would be really surprised if you had a problem. Uh, with with him uh, being too rough on her uh-huh you wouldn't okay um would you suggest like trying to i don't know tape their mouths or keep their like during the first introduction you can do that it, it's not ideal mm. uh we often will do that with aggressive crocodiles okay if we've had to pull them out to do a procedure to them mm -hmm. uh and you're releasing them like we 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 did this one situation we were measuring bite force mm. in all the species of crocodilians and we went to australia and we were working one morning we were working with these three huge well pretty big males 16 and a half foot males uh, their females are only seven or seven and a half or eight feet and long. these are saltwater crocodiles saltwater crocs right and so after we had done what we were doing with them you know we'd catch these animals and restrain them and then open their jaws and let them bite our bite meter and then we wanted to release them you know that animal's now pissed off and mm. and they may redirect their aggression to the female and so in that case what we did there's a number of ways you can do this but um you can create little harnesses that go around their jaws mm. and around their neck but those are hard to get off so in that case what we did is we taped the jaws with uh with duct tape uh but um we put a couple of wraps of tape on the jaws and then we took a big steel ring and ran the tape through that. Oh. So it was sticking up from his, from his snout. And so when he went back in the water, he couldn't bite her. 
And then after, you know, the next day, the day after that, after he's calmed down, you can just reach down with a hook and grab that steel ring and jerk that tape off of his jaws. And then he's back to normal. But oh. he's no longer he's no longer angry from from what you had done to him. Hmm. That's a good idea. Uh, so you can do that. Um, um, we often, if we're doing it for introductions, we'll often tape their jaws, but we won't tape them tight. We'll have it so they can gape their jaw a oh, little bit. Oh, okay. Uh, that way they can drink if they need to, but uh, they may want to try to bite the other animal um just to get that out of their system and establish mm -hmm. dominance with the whoever the other animal is but that way they can't open their jaws enough to make a killing bite mm. uh so they didn't they don't really damage the animal and there's little danger of the animal being killed in the encounter mm -hmm. i think it's just going to be hard to even try to get something around his mouth <laughs> like you know that would require capturing yeah. him again and i don't yeah. know yeah. Well, yeah. you know, a lot of people aren't aware of this. I mean, 20 years ago, uh, this was not the norm with crocodilians anywhere. Mm -hmm. But in the in the past 20 or 25 years, we've really uh, utilized training as a yeah. management tool. Mm -hmm. And you can train animals to shift themselves off exhibit you can train them to go into a uh, a crate yep. so that you could pick them up and take them to the vets if you need to do that. Uh, you can design a crate so once they've gone in there, you can open access panels to take blood or yep. to tape up their jaws. Um, you can even totally desensitize the animals to touch. It takes time. Yeah, I uh, I have to say one of the most magnificent things I've ever seen. There's a, uh, it's on Disney plus. I think it's, it's a, it's a behind the scenes of Disney's animal kingdom and yeah. the magic of Disney's animal kingdom. And they had an episode on their Nile Crocs. And I always wondered like, how are they managing them? And literally they are trained to go through these plexiglass shift crates and they have um, like PVC poles in between, like in the crates they stick through to where it e immobilizes the croc. They, right. They're not stressed. And I remember thinking this is ingenious. And so I think we are, I would like to eventually train them to go into crates, to eat in crates. If we did ever need to move them again or take them to the vet, I think it's a great idea. Like a shift box. You can kind of ease them into that. Mm -hmm. um, if you have animals that are really reticent. Now, some alligators, if you just bait them like mm -hmm. with a rat or something, you can get them to follow it, put it on a string. You can get them to follow it right into a crate mm. the very first time you expose it to them. Mm. And if you don't, if you don't want it to be a negative experience, you know, you just have them walk through the crate and then they get their rat once they're outside. Mm. Another thing you can do is just put, a piece of plywood or whatever the base of the crate's going to be in the enclosure oh. and get them to come up on that and feed them. And once they get used to that, then you go in and you build a side wall on that oh. bottom and keep feeding them. And then you build the second side wall on it to where they're now walking into a, a tunnel, but it doesn't have a roof on it. Yeah. And then finally, once they're used to that and they're no longer scared of it, you put a roof on it and uh, and then you enclose one end and then you've got yourself a crate. That is a great idea. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They, they are they're always leery of anything new in the environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you don't you don't want to stimulate that fear. What you're trying to do is just get them accustomed to whatever it is you're you're trying to get them to accept. Yeah, and it's so funny because they could be really shy too. If I have new people who come in the building, I don't know, friends or family members I haven't seen in a while and they want to see the alligators, Sonny and Chompers, they're, they could be quite shy and go underwater. Yeah. Like they know me, they know my voice, they they know my footsteps. I, yeah. it, It's interesting. It shocks a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of uh, 
alligator farmers are aware of that and they don't want strangers to go into the grow out houses because it disturbs their little alligators and slows their growth. Oh. And in fact, some of the croc farms in, in Africa that I've been to, they actually have a keeper that goes in with the little, these are little young crocs that are yeah. just, you know, starting to grow. They, they go into the grow out enclosure with them, put a chair there and they just sit there with them all day. Mm. And if anybody, and they're the only person that goes in that grow out house, cause they're the ones that the young animals get used to. Uh, and, and, uh, and then they're, you know, they're, they're scared of other animals, but what they're trying to do is keep stress at a minimum and maximize growth in those animals because they're going to be harvested for their hide. What are your thoughts on that? So it's a con it's, this is a conservation message that's hard to deliver to the public because it's not an easy uh, it's not an easy thing to explain. It's kind of like uh, you know when when alligators became endangered, uh, the government did a PR campaign saying don't buy alligator leather products. Mm -hmm. That's an easy message, right? And and it worked. And there's still today people that believe that you shouldn't buy products made out of alligator or crocodile because they're endangered and, they, you know, it's, it's taboo to do that. But in reality, alligators were saved by, by legislation, protection of ha wetland habitats, and by commercial harvest of the alligators. And it's a concept called sustainable utilization. And the, mm -hmm. the point to it is, the way I explain it to people is that there are very few people that re really care whether alligators exist or not. And there are probably more people that would rather they didn't exist because they think of them as these man-eaters or whatever. There are very few people that don't care about money. And so if you can attach an economic value to a species, mm. uh, there, it, it gives people a reason to wanting to see that species persist. Uh, and so, and, and beyond that, if alligators have an economic value because we can sell their hide, we can sell their meat, we can sell other products, they sell gallbladders in Asia, they sell their fat for suntan lotion oh and other things. Um, they do whatever they can to get money out of those alligators. Uh, uh, but those alligators are coming from wetlands, from wild habitats. And so the value of the alligators provides a value to those wetlands as well. Mm -hmm. So people that are involved in the alligator industry want to see those wetlands protected and persist because the gators that go into alligator farms, um, are, are generally alligators that were collected as eggs from wild nests or mm. hatchlings at the end of the hatching season. And then those go into alligator farms. Different states do different things. In Florida, they survey all the areas that are uh, available for harvest. Uh, so those are public lands, they're large private land holdings, that sort of thing. Wildlife biologists survey those, they take helicopters around, they count the number of nests that were laid that year, mm -hmm. and they and they develop a quota with the intent of removing 50% of all the eggs or hatchlings that would be produced in that year, which seems like a lot. But there's been plenty of research to indicate that removing 50% has no impact on the size of the adult population 
or the recruitment of new individuals into that population. So those are basically, those 50% are just part of the ones that weren't going to make it to adult size anyway. You know, there's relatively few of them um, make it to adult size. Half of them are probably dead in the first two years of their life. Mm. This way, that that loss gets taken into farms and um, and raised up by farmers. In Louisiana, they actually have a huge program. They survey all these wetlands. They try to collect essentially all of the eggs or all the hatchlings that were produced. Those go to farmers. And then when those animals reach four feet in length, I think they keep changing the numbers. I think now it's 12% of them get released back into the wild. Oh. So because 12% is the number that would have survived to the size that they're releasing them back into the wild. Okay. And uh, and the rest of them are utilized by by the industry. But, you know, people... Many people um, don't think of this as a as a real conservation measure because animals are being killed in the process, but they they are. You know, people. It's a hard message to deliver that by by giving by harvesting some animals and giving animals and habitats economic value we have a far greater chance of preserving those animals and that habitat into the future. Absolutely. Well, Kent, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Will you join me for the after show really quick? Sure. Awesome. And listeners, you can actually order Kent's book, Alligators, the Illustrated Guide to Their Biology, Behavior, and Conservation on Amazon. I will put the links in the show notes. With that said, listeners, if you want to join us for the after show, all you have to do is head on over to patreon.com slash animals to the max. Let's do it. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.